Hey everyone, this is Charlie Levine, Editor-in-Chief of Angler's Journal Magazine, and this next podcast is with a hero of mine, uh, Flip Pallet. Uh, if you've spent any time in the fishing world, you've probably heard that name. You've definitely, if you hear his voice, you will instantly recognize it. Flip uh, started, really, this television fishing genre with his show Walker's K Chronicles, which ran from the early 90s to like the mid 2000s on on ESPN and it was a show that I loved I watched it with my dad I just felt it you know it was a different take it wasn't just about the reeling in a fish or catching a fish it was really about the places the adventure the people all these different sides of the sport of fishing not just fly fishing or offshore fishing but but fishing and and flip portrayed it in a way that made it approachable for anyone and I just always really loved his approach and 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 loved the writing and the narration of that that tv show and I found it really interesting that other people I would meet through you know writing and working in magazines would talk about how flip influenced them or helped them get going you know guys like Jose Wahebe or Rob Fordyce or Benny Blanco, you know, all these captains are really impacted by Flip. And then I wanted to ask Flip who who he was impacted by because it's really created this amazing network of talented people who care so much about fishing and the resource and the habitat and teaching people and teaching them how to love it. You know, I can remember watching that show and just getting excited, even at the opening credits where there's this beautiful sport fish running out to the edge and, and that boat I fell in love with. And I actually, you know, many, many years later, I wrote a story about that boat for Power Motor Yacht magazine. And, and it was all through this one show. And so having the privilege of talking with Flip and in his home, you know, sitting outside, there is some bugs buzzing and, and animals bumping around. And, you know, the audio was probably not the best, but I don't care. It was such a cool day. I really hope you enjoy this chat with Flip and make sure to look for an article I'm going to put out in an upcoming issue of Angler's Journal about him and his many contributions to the sport. If you like this podcast, please subscribe so you never miss it. And check out anglersjournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. And please pick up a subscription. So without further ado, here is the master himself, Flip Pallet. Flip Pallet. I, I don't even really know where to start. I think me, like a lot of people who grew up watching you and seeing pictures of you do all these cool things over the years through your shows and all this stuff and just hearing your voice, it is is such an honor for me to be sitting here next to you and be able to interview you. I, I know you're a pretty private guy, and I, I just want to start by saying thank you. Thank you for letting me do this, and, and thank you for letting me come to your place, which is ama- amazing here. It's uh, it's so good to be sitting down with you. You're more than welcome. I'm the one that's honored, and evidently I've got you fooled. <laughs> me and millions of others, I would guess. Um, but this property... It was interesting, you know, I don't live too far from here, but you're really, you've, you've created such a, a uniquely Florida place here with kind of a hammock and the cabbage palms, and uh, it's really beautiful. We, uh, we moved here after Hurricane Andrew in 1993, and in Homestead, where we lived during Andrew 
every leaf on every tree was gone. Every tree was gone. Every blade of grass was gone. There was absolutely nothing left of Homestead that was green. And we had spent uh, endless hours, my wife and I, bringing plants from the Everglades and creating a, <clears throat> a natural hammock at our house in Homestead. And when we lost that and decided to move to this area, uh, we wanted a place that had everything that we, that we missed so much after Hurricane Andrew. So we chose this old oak hammock and we tried to leave as much of it as we could just exactly the way it is um, so that we could enjoy the, the wildlife and the view and, and all that comes with that. Um, I don't have to explain that. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but it is. It's like a little slice of heaven for us here. Yeah. I mean, as we were setting up and chit-chatting, I saw your eyes perk up and you kind of sat up in your chair and you said, there's a deer. And I looked over and sure enough, there was a deer at the edge of the driveway. Yeah. And before it's all over, you're going to see turkeys and hogs and Lord knows what may walk through here while we're talking. But I would imagine, so you were born and raised in, in Miami, right? I was. Okay. And when were you born, if you don't mind me asking? I was born in 1942 and Miami was a very, very small town then. And I, 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 it, it was just the ideal place to grow up. We were right between Biscayne Bay and the, and the Everglades. So if we went west, we were in the Glades. And if we went east, we were in Biscayne Bay and then the ocean. And just to the south and west where the Florida Key is. So it was the... It was just the perfect playing field, and it really was a playing field uh, for a young guy to grow up in uh, and become interested in the natural world. I would imagine if you weren't interested in the natural world, it might have been a tough place to grow up. I mean, it sounds like you gravitated to that and found your place, but um, which was, I would imagine back then, there wasn't a ton of people doing what you were doing there weren't a ton of people period uh i think greater miami when i was a kid had something like eighty-five thousand people wow uh so when you went million. to the when you went to the movie picture the line would be out on the street and you knew everybody in the line how about that That's... you couldn't uh you couldn't butt ahead of anybody because everybody knew you uh, and and uh that had changed so fast and along with it everything around Miami that was so beautiful and so perfect began to be developed mm -hmm. um, and still um, mother nature is is super tough uh, and she held on for years and we enjoyed the areas surrounding greater Miami and the Keys uh, for many, many years until it became, and after Hurricane Andrew, uh, it was such a, an event in our lives. And, and uh, we looked around after the storm and we realized that this really wasn't the Miami that we knew anymore. Um, it's, it was populated by people from other places. Mm -hmm. There were no traditional Florida values at that point. 
Um, nobody seemed concerned about issues involving the natural world. Um, it was all about growth, and it was all about instant gratification. And, and so we, we began looking for, for a new landing zone. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful spot here. And I'm, I'm just curious, so how did you find fishing, or how did fishing find you when you were a young man? Well, everything was everything was water in South Florida. I mean, in every puddle had a fish in it. That's great. It was it was really really unique, and I think fishing for me really started uh, more at a summer camp that I attended as a little kid, and I remember catching a brim, very small brim, silver dollar size, off a dock camp and as i was lifting it out of the water a bass ate it oh wow and that was the beginning of it i clearly remember every inch of that uh, occurrence and that was the beginning for me of, of fishing okay and did you have some family members or no no it was <laughs> no. you just kind of had to figure no. it out no my dad my dad was not a um a classic dad. He was a dad of those times. You know, he was just home from the Second World War. It was the first time in the history of, of America where middle-class people could have a mortgage or could buy a car. Um, and so my dad was very busy being a provider more than, and, and he did not have the disposable leisure time. Neither did he have disposable income to be a, a pal. He was a provider and a good provider and very kind and nice and wonderful, but he was never my pal and we never went hunting or fishing or bowling. Or, I mean, it wasn't that, he wasn't that dad. Okay. Uh, so I, I had to look, I mean, it was clear to me that I was, um, not interested in, I was never interested in school or social events or anything like that. It was always, it was always the outdoors. It was always looking out the window, um, imagining what was happening outside. And so I had to look beyond my family members for role models and information and Information wasn't there like it is today. The only place that information was available was from a mentor or a teacher, or there were two or three magazines that were available that dealt with the outdoors. There was Sports Afield and Outdoor Life. Sure. And another magazine called Boys Life. Um, and that's where all the information was that was not provided by individuals. So, you know, finding those people that were willing to share and willing to, you know, have someone tagging along and, you know, the extra weight and the extra was not easy. But eventually, uh, for all of us, I think they materialize. We find them or they find us, I'm not sure what the karmic strategy is, but somehow it happens. 
And and I'm sure you were just like a sponge once you oh, found yeah. it, just yeah. sucking it all up. Yeah, no, probably worse. <laughs> I'm more a pest than a sponge. Um, so who were some of your early mentors? I've, I've heard you talk about Stu Apt a lot back in the day. Yeah, Stu, <clears throat> Stu was definitely, in, in many areas of my life, Stu was a mentor. Stu, in a way, was always in my life. Um, his dad and my grandfather were friends. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And uh, the, the community, as I said, was very small, particularly in their, in their day. Um, they immigrated there in the last of the 1800s, the early 1900s. So it was very, very small. And they knew one another, and they, they did business together, and they were socially friendly. And um, then uh, I had an uncle on my father's side who was also friendly with, uh, with Stu's dad and did business with Stu's dad. And so I always knew of the Apt family. Um, they were very prominent. Um, not socially prominent, but just in the, in, in the sense that they were well-known in the community. And, and uh, so Stu, just about the time that I was developing this tremendous interest in the outdoors, Stu was just getting out of the Navy and went to work for Pan American Airways as a jet pilot. And he got laid off. He was also very interested in fishing and the outdoors. When he got laid off as a pilot, um, he became a fishing guide. And I mean, that intrigued me so much. I mean, we, I used to, I used to hear about him all the time, and, and when me and my friends would fish, we would see him in the distance in his skiff. He had one of the, one of the very early technical polling skiffs, real polling skiffs. Um, we would see him on the horizon. We knew who he was, and we would sit and watch him and see where he went and what he did and how he did everything. And it was like being in a classroom, but not and I remember some days we would, we would secretly park on the highway on US-1 near his house on Little Torch Key. And we would sit in the car with binoculars and we would watch him come out in the morning and load his boat and put the rods in the boat and put ice in the cooler. And we would watch every move. We dressed like Stu. Oh, wow. He acted like Stu. He was truly, I mean, we didn't know the names of baseball players or football players or basketball players, but we knew everything about Stu and, and others like Stu. Uh, and the guides were our, were our we're heroes. heroes. Yeah. And the game wardens were our heroes. Game wardens then were, were you know, it was a different world. I mean, they would, they would sleep in the water all night long to catch you violating in the morning when the sun came up. Um, and they all rode airboats in the glades, and so they were the between the game wardens and the fishing guides. We had plenty of plenty of heroes, and then the the hunters and the fishermen who were prominent at that time. 
you know, became our real mentors. And in addition to Stu, there was a there was a fellow by the name of Pete Peacock, who was a tremendous influence on me uh, on the Everglades side, okay. whereas Stu was more a mentor in fishing, and Pete more in hunting in the glades, and, and that's airboats and that sort of thing. Um, and then as time went on, uh, Stu got involved in filming, outdoor film, outdoor television. In the early years, the American Sportsman and, and those sorts of shows. And uh, Stu allowed me to, to be a camera boat operator in some of the productions that he did. And then uh, as more time passed, uh, I had opportunities to do things. And Stu was always very, very gracious with his help and support uh, and uh, was a tremendous bridge between myself and uh, people in the television community uh, that, that uh, ultimately helped me you know, with just sure. certain television things that I've, that I've done over the, over the years. But Stu was the, was the beginning of all that. That's really neat. And, you know, doing some research and reading about some of the things you've done, it sounded like you were a bit of a wild child uh, going out on air mattresses <laughs> and however you could get to these fish. It sounded like uh, there was no fear. Well, it wasn't just me. I mean, I had this small group of friends, uh, Chico Fernandez and Norman Duncan uh, and John Emery, uh, and we, John Samuels, and we, we did everything together. I mean, we were all in school together, and we, we fished together. Those guys didn't hunt at all. They were none of them were interested in in that side of things. Okay, um, but we fished together, and all of us went through the air mattress phase together. <laughs> we we had no skiffs, and Biscayne Bay was very very hard for me to explain to you. Uh, in, in light of what's there today, but what Biscayne Bay was in terms of a fishing resource, uh, redfish, trout, mackerel, snapper, jacks, tarpon, snook, bonefish, permit, everything right in Biscayne Bay wow. in huge numbers, grouper in the bay. I mean, it was, it was a treasure. And... Um, because the resource was so brilliant, we were able to gain access with, to any part of that that we wanted on air mattresses. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't have the, the, we didn't have skiffs. We didn't have the wherewithal to have skiffs. Uh, and so air mattresses were the logical choice. <laughs> sure, why not? And we went, I mean, the places we went on those air mattresses, the distances that we covered were phenomenal. No one would believe it. And the fish that we caught, no one would believe that. Oh, that those have to be great memories. Yeah. When, when monofilament first came in the 50s, we, um, we all became enamored of two-pound tests. So we bought these little Italian reels called Alcido Microns, and we filled them with two-pound test, and we tried to catch everything on two-pound test. And some of the things that we caught on two-pound on top of those air mattresses would, would be unbelievable today. No one would believe it on actual two-pound test. 
Wow. I mean, if you look at two pound tests the wrong way, it breaks. Yeah. So I can't yeah. imagine. Yeah. True. That was True. like, and, and what was, so is this the 1950s, 60s that you're 50s doing? 50s and early 60s. Yeah. So very, what, very early 60s. What kind of tackle were you really using? Well, then uh, everything was um, plug rods and plug reels, revolving spool reels. Not, not spinning. No, spinning reels spinning weren't really. Spinning hadn't come yet. Spinning didn't get there until, I'm going to say, the middle 50s. Spinning came. Uh, it came from Europe. And um, I, I remember the first monofilament that I ever saw. I had no idea what to do with it. I mean, the knots didn't work. The knots that we used on, on linen and braided lines didn't work. We had nothing work. You could see through it. It just, just said, this can't possibly work. You know, what, what is this? <laughs> we soon found out. And then spinning revolutionized everything. And, and uh, you know, we still used our plug reels because we had become so very proficient with them. And there were such great tools, but they did not have drag systems. There was no drag on a plug reel at all. The drag was your thumb. Wow. And there was a Cuban woman in Miami, I can't remember her name, but she knitted uh, these little doilies. They looked like, um, they were called thumb stalls, and they slipped over your thumbs like a condom. <laughs> and you could press the revolving spool as a fish was running, with your thumbs to create drag. If you had one of these thumb stalls on, you didn't burn your fingerprints off. Wow. Uh, and that was the only drag that was available. And uh, the rods were, the first one, first rod I had was made out of steel. I never heard of such things. Yeah, it was, a, it was like a five-sided steel, uh, looked like a fencing foil. It had guides on it. And uh, then, of course, <clears throat> fiberglass came along, and bamboo was in there somewhere, and then fiberglass came along, and then boron came along, and then graphite came along. And so I've been lucky enough to see all these changes and improvements in, in tackle and outboard motors and skiff materials and... Uh, all these things, I mean, just by the happy accident of when I was born. Um, because no matter what anyone experiences today, um, no matter how big the fish they catch, no matter how fast they go, whatever, they can never do the things that I've done or that my friends have done because those times just don't exist, those discoveries don't lie over the horizon to be made. Um, just very, very lucky. Wow. That's, that's great perspective. And, you know, it seems you're very well known as a fly fisherman, uh, and rightly so. But in watching your show, Walker's K Chronicles, you're, you're just a fisherman. I, I, you, it seems you'll, you were doing everything. You weren't just doing one thing. So I don't know if that was part of from what you grew up doing, or do you still enjoy doing all the different types of fishing? Or oh, you absolutely, mostly absolutely, fly? Charlie. I I still 
I still have, I still have all my old plug reels and all my old spinning reels, and I still use them today. As a matter of fact, uh, not long ago, I was doing a show with uh, Benny Blanco. Oh, really nice guy. And I was using one of my old reels from the 50s, and, um, which I still enjoy using them today. And the reel made such a horrible grinding noise <laughs> <laughs> and that Benny finally said, Flip, you got to start using something modern. I, we can't hear you talk for the sound of the gears in your reel. So he gave me a modern spinning reel to use for the show. I had to lay my old stuff down. But I still use, I love spinning, I love plug casting, and I love fly casting. Fly casting was sort of the last thing that came along for, for us. Um, we, we saw someone catch a bonefish on a fly rod in the Keys. Um, and we had no idea what it was. I mean, we, we, we watched it happen. We had no idea what was going on. It was just like some foreign witchcraft. So we started looking into it and asking questions, and then we realized that this was a new way to fish, a new set of challenges, a whole new set of tackle that we could enjoy and that we could modify and that we could adapt to salt water. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, when we, when we started fly fishing, the idea of catching a billfish on a fly rod it was incomprehensible. I can imagine. Uh, catching an amberjack, a 100-pound amberjack on a fly rod, or catching a, a grouper on a fly rod, uh, or a true red snapper uh, on a fly rod, tarpon on a fly rod. This was unimaginable. And so, again, through the, through the wonders of great good luck, uh, I've got to see all these things actually happen and have gotten to do all these things myself with a fly rod. So, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't uh, reduce in any way my enjoyment of other tackle. I still use that all the time. Still, still fishing that two pound test, incidentally. Yeah. <laughs> you do like a challenge. Um, so when did you, I know you worked as a, a banker as a younger man, and then you would fish on the weekends, right? And at some point, you know, I don't really see you being a, an office type guy. <laughs> it probably just, did it just become too much? And, and you said, I'm going to figure out how to be a guide or. It was actual physical and mental torture. <clears throat> working, like a prison or yeah, something. Working inside every single day and, and looking outside and watching the morning go by and then watching the late afternoon come and I was still at a desk. Uh, it was torture. Um, and so at some point I gave it up and uh, I had a very, very brief stint as a retailer. I opened a, an outdoor shop for a couple of years and realized that that was the worst kind of slavery. Um, I was in a regional, major regional shopping mall and had to keep mall hours and mall dates and realized that the whole hunting season was the whole retail season. Uh, and 
So I was a slave to that shop. And so I left that and um, became a guide. And I guided for about 14 years until, really until up until Hurricane Andrew, um, lost my airboat, lost my skiff, all my tackle, my truck, our house. Uh, that was a bad storm for us. Uh, we literally lost everything. I, but the, the, the biggest loss was a lifetime of photography in the Keys and the Everglades. I mean, I had images that are irreplaceable, and all that was gone. Uh, yeah, that's sad. And- yeah, it was terrible. But, but um, the good thing was that we... It, it prompted us to look for a different place, which is, which is how we find ourselves here. Uh, Diane was a flight attendant for National, I mean for uh, Delta. And Delta had a base in Orlando. Okay. And I had guided up here. I had brought people up here to the Mosquito Lagoon and the Indian River and, and hunted in the woods up here quite a bit. Um, so I was familiar with the area. She had a base in Orlando. So we just started looking for some ground that uh, looked like Florida. And uh, here we are. I mean, now it's, what, 30-some-odd years we've been here. Wow. And didn't you meet her by she was a client or she <laughs> yeah. booked you to yeah, she, take her you fishing? Know, it was uh, great. She called one of my best friends who was a guy, John Emery. She called John to book a day. She wanted to catch a tarpon. And she called John and called him and called him and called him and he never returned her call. So she went back to whoever it was that referred her to John. And she said, look, this guy never returns my call. Isn't there anyone else that can take me to catch a tarpon? And um, this guy gave her my name. At that time I was guiding, it was summertime, and I was guiding in um, those first six years on the Bighorn River in Montana, and the Bighorn was open to white people. It was closed. The the Indians uh, had it um, closed off. But then they opened it up. They made a deal with the government, opened it up, and I guided those first six years. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, So I was just coming home from the summer out there, um, it was two weeks into the elk season, and I was just coming home, and Diane called about catching a tarpon. And so, I mean, I, I didn't have anything booked because I was just getting home, and so I said, sure. And uh, she came walking down the driveway one morning. Uh, to go fishing, and I looked down the driveway, and I went, "This is going to be, this is going to be trouble." Um, and then, uh, so we fished that one day, and then Lefty called me a couple of days later, and said, "I have to make a film of red fishing out of a canoe." He said, and. Um, do you know a pretty girl that would be interested in? I said, yeah, I do. So 
remember Lefty was in a canoe with Bobby Markowitz, a friend of mine, and uh, I had asked Diane, and she said, sure. She was in the front of my canoe, and uh, I had a 20-foot Old Town freighter, if you're into canoes. That's, yeah. It's a, it's a big canoe. It's a big it's, uh, so we were, Stable. I was standing up poling into the wind, and Diane was standing in the front of the canoe with a, with a spinning rod. And we were sneaking up on a tailing redfish. And I remember the it was straight into the breeze. And I could see the redfish. And I'm pulling up to the redfish. And the breeze is blowing toward me. And I could smell Diane in the front of the canoe. And I knew. I, I mean, I knew. I said, this is, you know, this is it. Oh, that's a great story. And it was. Well, my wife's name is Diane, too. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a cool story. And, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, so you guided all these years, and this has been bugging me. It's sort of a personal question, but I recently caught a 40-inch snook, which was, like, my personal best. I've always wanted to do it. It was an incredible day. And when I posted the pictures, a lot of people congratulated me, and someone's like, well, but you caught it with a guide, so it doesn't really count. And it, I, I was, it kind of ticked me off. And I'm very curious what you would think about that because you've obviously put people on all sorts of fish over the years, but. Well, I, I just don't understand the comment at all. I, I mean, when you think of it, all of us caught great fish with guides of some kind. I mean, none of us just were born walked down to the water's edge and caught a 40-inch snook, which incidentally... It was an awesome day. Well, that's it was incredible. An yeah. So that you were with a guide, I think, is wonderful. I mean, I don't understand the comment at all. Well, thank I mean, you. It, the guide did not catch the fish. No, and I'm sure you've become great friends with a lot of your clients, and it's some of my best buddies now I've met through hiring them to take me fishing, and you build these cool relationships and then they go somewhere else and you follow them. And it's, it's part of why I love this sport and everything. Anyone who has never fished with a guide formally will never have the chance to understand that there is the possibility if things go well and things going well, doesn't always have to do with the fishing but there is the possibility that in that small skiff over the course of a day or two days or a week, a relationship can form between an angler and a guide. And I know this because I've seen it happen many, many times over the course of 14 years in a 14-foot office with <laughs> another person. Um, this special alchemy can turn into a lifelong friendship and more. I mean, you can wind up saying things to a guide and he to you that would never be said in a confessional. Um, business subjects, life lessons, mm -hmm. uh, the sharing of tragic things. Um, all this happens in that little skiff. Um, and sometimes tremendous ideas are are formed and um, 
if you never allow that to happen or give that fire a chance to smolder, uh, it'll, it'll, you'll, miss, you'll miss something. Um, thank you for saying that. And you're right. It's sort of a safe space when you're on the boat and, and you find the right chemistry between the guide or the crew or whatever the case is. And yeah, I've had my most memorable fishing days probably because, you know, and as you've, you've traveled everywhere, obviously you, it's hard to just show up somewhere you've never been and, and just get on the fish. So you go with locals and you learn all that stuff. Well, here's, here's the amazing thing that happens that, that tease, that tease this whole possibility up. And that is that the person coming fishing very often is coming on the day or few days that are the best days of his life. I mean, that are the happiest. He's away from his office. He's away from his business. He's away from the trials and tribulations of the day. As the boat leaves the dock, all that stays on land. I mean, he's at his very best. Mm. And the guide... I can only I can only say this from my experience, but I was a guide because I loved being a guide, and I wanted to be a guide, and I wanted to be a guide every single day of my life. Uh, and that was the happiest time of my life when I was doing what I really, really felt I was meant to do. Um, and so the the two of us, myself and the client. We're at our very, very best. The other part of it is that if the client is a successful person, which he most certainly would be if he had the wherewithal to to hire a guide for a day or several days, um, so he had a story. He had a path that allowed him to, to arrive at whatever station in life he was at. On the other hand, the guide enjoyed this incredible freedom that the client admired in some way. Um, he may not have wanted to be a guide, but he appreciated this heady freedom that the guide enjoyed every single day. Um, and so they both admire one another in some way. And so the rest of the chemistry just all has to do with intangible things that cause that spark to ignite. But the setup is this mutual admiration and the fact that you're happy being there, the client is happy being there. These might be the four days that he's looked forward to for a year while he was cracking someone's chest open every day. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've seen it happen many, many times. Someone comes from the business world, uh, the high tension, whatever, and they, and they get in the skiff on the first day, and it takes them a whole day to... Decompress a bit. Yeah. And then on the third day of a four-day thing, then they start thinking about having to, to go home tomorrow. And so they get a couple of days of pure enjoyment, uh, one day of decompression, and then one day of thinking about the flight home. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's very, very interesting. And um, 
take uh, a thoracic surgeon from Pittsburgh, what are the chances that he could catch a 40-inch snook on his own? But he's entitled to do that. Yeah. So. And he did his homework yeah, and found the right found person. Found the right guide, enjoyed the day, caught a 40-inch snook, and yeah. I think it's wonderful on all accounts. So, And you nailed it so perfectly. There's something so powerful about throwing lines and just leaving the dock, whether you're on a skiff, any kind of canoe, any any just getting, it's it's an escape. And, and I exactly think that's really why we love it so much. And... And you've always been so good at capturing that on your television shows and and just in your narrations and writing. And I, I've, I can't imagine how many people you've inspired, Flip, through your stories. Do you ever think about so that? Or no, it's very. It's kind of you to say you you never you never know who you who or how you you impact people. And the truth of the matter is that television. Um, at the time, at the time that I had uh, a, a presence on television, television was powerful. I mean, the internet didn't exist. Social media didn't exist. Television was the most powerful medium that there was. Yeah, without a doubt. And so, um, and I came along in television at a time when basically there had only been one other serious saltwater show. And it wasn't really strictly a saltwater show. And that was the ABC American Sportsman. Um, And it covered a lot of different things, including hunting. Uh, And so here, here I was on television with all that power, the power of television, and um, a saltwater, light tackle saltwater show, which had never been seen before. People were seeing that enterprise for the very, very first time. Um, And equipment was getting good. Uh, Outboards would actually run for two days in a row. Uh, Skiffs actually floated shallow. Push poles didn't splinter in your hand. Um, so people got to see all this, and, and the resource was insane. I mean, the resource was still viable. So they got to see the best of everything uh, during, those, during those times, and that would have been the late 80s and the early 90s. Uh, it was a pretty exciting time. So, um, not so much that I have anything unique to bring to the game. It's more, f- it's more just a, a function of timing. Everything's about timing, you know? It's So I would watch the show with my dad and... As I was telling you earlier, I grew up in Connecticut, and he had a 40-foot sport fish, but he was so determined to go to Walker's K. At some point in his life, he's like, we got to go to Walker's, we got to go to Walker's. And it finally happened, and because he didn't like to fly, took the boat over, not our boat, but and they went marlin fishing, 
And th- we still have a picture of him, you know, with the famous gantry in Walker's K. And it was like a huge goal of his. And it was, you know, all from that. And it's that opening, the opening scene, you know, where you say, we'll ride the ragged edge where the fish are wild. You know, it's, it was so good. And I, I too totally fell in love with it. And I want to tell you a quick little story, but the boat, the sea lion, that, that old Whitaker that the Apple Naps owned. So the Apple Naps who owned the island and, and I'm sure sponsored the show and all that stuff. I fell in love with that boat. It was such a beautiful boat. And then in Hurricane Irma, it sunk at the dock. And um, we did a story in one of the magazines I write for about this guy who put all the money and got it built again. And so, too, it's like all those little pieces. And, and throughout your life, you've worked with all these really cool guys. And it's, it's so interesting to me as sort of an outsider to look at all these heroes of mine that are just like in your circle of trust and your buddies and I don't know what I'm trying to ask you. It's just, well, I think again, it's really cool. Again, Charles, it's, it's timing. It's just all timing. You know, the, the, the fact that I was able to connect with one of my great heroes, Stu. I mean, that was just all timing. It, it never could have happened if I was in another place in that time. Um, and to have not only come in contact with him, but to have developed a relationship with him, a really amazing relationship with him. Stu and I traveled all over the world together fishing, and we traveled all over the country together hunting. Stu, although it's not very well known, Stu uh, was a very, very avid hunter and a fabulous shotgun pointer and did a lot of big game hunting as well in the Western Rockies. Um, and so I got to share all those things with one of the people that I envied and idolized. And Stu was so incredibly generous um, about sharing not only his knowledge, but his, his contacts. And, you know, many, many people that teach you things are perfectly willing to teach you things when you're not a threat to them in any way. That was never the case with Stu. The more I succeeded in things and the better I became at things, the more pride he took in that. Um, I mean, it was a tremendously healthy relationship in that regard. Stu never was, was felt intimidated by anything that I achieved. He was always happy for the achievement. Um, well, and you've done that for a lot of people. Well, that's from having a role model like that's Stu. So, that's so Lefty, cool. Lefty was the same way. Lefty yes, was, we have to talk about Lefty. Yeah, I know you and yeah. he were very close friends and, and did a lot of fishing and had a lot of cool adventures together. How did you guys first meet? It was a fishing club uh, meeting that I, I belonged to a, a local fishing club in the Miami area. And Lefty had come moved to Miami to become the uh, director of a big fishing tournament there. And in an effort to promote the tournament, he decided to make appearances at local fishing clubs. There were several. Mm-hmm. And uh, mine was one of the large ones. And so he came one night to speak to the club. And um, I'm trying to think how to say this delicately. Lefty was not Lee Wolf, 
He was not an imposing presence. You know, he was a five and a half foot chubby guy. <laughs> Fun loving uh, with guy. With a big belly and, and, uh, and a thousand jokes. Very good jokes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And uh, much, much, much more that was not visible on the outside. So when he came to talk to our club, he was really not getting a lot of respect, and there was a lot of mumbling and talking, and and uh, I I felt really bad because uh, he was trying to talk over all this kibitzing and everything that was going on, and and uh, finally at some point you could see that it was bothering him. The guy was sitting in the front row with a fly rod on his lap. It was in two pieces. It was a two-piece fly rod with a reel on it and Lefty bent over and asked the guy if he could borrow it for a moment and the guy handed it to Lefty and Lefty stripped the fly line off the reel gave the guy back the rod and reel and Lefty held the fly line in his hand and began false casting the line with his hand and at first you know it was just a little bit of line and, and it didn't look like much was happening but he began shooting line, and now he was carrying a bunch of line in the air. He made a back cast and shot, I don't know, 60, 70 feet of line. Wow, just his hand. Which nobody in that room could do with a rod. <laughs> and I looked at that, and I thought, I don't know what that is that this little guy has got, but... I'm going to find out. So I learned that Lefty lived just maybe a half a mile away from me. And so I went to Lefty's house two or three days later in the morning, and I had to struggle to wait until an acceptable hour, like 9 o'clock. I wanted to be there at daylight. And I waited until about 9 o'clock, knocked on the door. His wife came to the door, and I asked if Mr. Lefty was there, and she went and got him. And I asked him if he would help me with my fly. Because we were, we were fly fishers, all of us in the clubs and all of us. I mean, we could catch a bonefish on fly. We could catch a snook or a redfish on fly. But we were not casters. We really did not know. Other than being good fishermen and able to catch fish, we, we knew what fish wanted. We knew where they lived and what they did. We knew all that. So to catch one on a fly rod, um, we could make it happen. But it was not with the art of fly fishing. And Lefty possessed the only art that there was. Nobody else had the key. And Lefty agreed to, and I just became, I mean, I should have bought a tent just camped out. <laughs> and camped right there because I visited his front door that often. And he was always ready, willing, and able. And he, you know, he got me started tying. I thought I could tie flies. It was ridiculous. Uh, but Lefty, Lefty taught me that. Lefty taught me about photography. Lefty taught me about so much about life. And he was always there when, when, if I needed anything. And often he was there when I didn't know that I needed something. And at Hurricane Andrew, when, when we were, I mean, literally, we were living in the back of a borrowed pickup truck 
with a little fiberglass shell over it. We could not leave the ruins of our home because if you left, the insurance company couldn't process your claim. You had to be there to meet the insurance adjuster. And you didn't know when he was going to show up because there were so many people affected. So you had to stay there and be there to meet the insurance adjuster. So we were stuck there. Um, I think two days after the hurricane, Lefty came. Somebody brought him. I mean, the streets were unrecognizable. How they made their way through all the rubble and destruction and everything. He came and he had a paper bag with $30,000 in it. He said, flip. He said, Evan, I, this is money. We, we put it in the washing machine or someplace. He goes, we don't, we don't use it. We don't need it. Uh, you don't have to pay it back, but you, you and Diane are going to need. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We didn't, you know, we didn't need money. We needed water. We needed <laughs> yeah. Like that. But that, but Lefty was, I'm just, I just say that because that was Lefty. That's I mean, amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, so Lefty was always, always, always there. Uh, Lefty is the is the the guy who insisted that I make personal appearances um, and put me on that path, uh, which for many years was a significant part of uh, of my income. It was making these personal appearances at shows and fishing clubs and gatherings of whatever whatever kind and doing schools and clinics and things like that that was all lefty i had no i had no way i mean lefty oh that's interesting lefty influenced all of that um and lefty introduced me to so many so many people in the industry that i never would have gotten access to were it not for lefty um, and um, you used the term earlier that resonated. Um, it is, the whole thing is very much like a tree. Um, and uh, the branches often go in the same directions and sometimes touch one another and the wind blows and something else happens. And uh, um, so Lefty was very much the trunk that's a great, yeah, when we were talking earlier and as I was saying about all these people like Oliver White and Jose Wahebe and all these guys that you've become friends with and influence them like Stu did to you, it's, it is. It's sort of like this family tree of badass fishing guides. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know what? They, they everyone you meet um, who's worth, worthwhile influences you in some way it's not that i influenced all these people i've been influenced by each and every one of them yeah as a writer especially in a lover of fishing and fishing stories you know i gravitated towards harrison and mcguane and these fellas in that special time there was in the keys and i would imagine you were a part of it or knew those guys and just curious Again, you were kind of talking about how just a moment in time. And um, did you hang out with those fellas? And yeah. Was yeah. that that must have been a special time too? Yeah, it was. It was the that was I guess the zenith of the entire 
tarpon years, uh, as far as I'm concerned, because it it predated all the competitive tarpon activity. I mean, back in the days when when uh, when all those guys were in Key West and the Lower Keys uh, fishing for tarpon, it was almost, uh, it's very, very hard for me to explain the fraternal feeling that there was then. There was zero competition. There was enough room for everyone that was there because there were so few people there. And you didn't, it was a time when you saw a skiff on the horizon and you could identify it. You knew that it was Steve Huff, or you knew that it was Stu, or you knew that it was George Hummel, or you knew that it was Ted Williams. You knew exactly who it was. And by their direction and the time of the tide, you knew exactly where they were going. Wow. So you were able to plan your deal around where you saw them sitting or saw them heading based on the time of the tide and so forth. And you could plan your day. And the fact that they were at any given spot didn't lessen your chances of having a great day or seeing fish. Today, every place that a tarpon could conceivably swim, there is a skiff. Sure. In a different sense, like if you get too close to someone, it could turn sideways a little or get well, ugly. And, or... and you don't really want to get close to anybody. Part of the part of the joy and, and, and part of the experience is, is the solitude. Um, that's gone greatly from the equation in, in these times. But back then, in those days, um, it wasn't a factor. There was always some place to go. Um, the guides didn't have a spot that belonged to them. Okay. Uh, you were the first one there. That was your spot. <laughs> it was your spot until you left. People gave you a very, very wide berth, and they were very, very considerate. Uh, and there was no competition. Uh, nobody was in a tournament where money was involved and status was involved. Uh, and it made them envious of where you were or desirous of displacing you from where you were. I mean, it's just everything was different uh, and better. Yeah, I could uh, imagine. It sounds magical. Yeah, so to have been there every day and be able to tarpon fish like that every single day and bonefish and permit fish, I mean, it was all the same. Um, and it was the, those were the years of the trailer. Uh, there were only very, very few guides. I'd say less than a handful that were tied to a dock anywhere. Everybody was on a trailer. And everybody was all up and down the keys. And you would launch in Isle Marotta in the morning because that's what the tides called for. And you would pull the skiff out, and you could be at Bay of Honda in the evening launching again for a tide there, or Key West, or, I mean, it was nothing. The speed limit 
on the keys was 70 miles an hour. And there was one traffic signal, and it was in Big Pine Key. Wow. Between Homestead and Key West. One traffic. One traffic signal. Man. Well, now if you went 70 down that highway, you'd be in big trouble. <laughs> instantly arrested. But 70 miles an hour. And over these two-lane bridges. So you could catch a different tide, like you're saying. Start. Would you all also hang out in the evenings, or were you just too tired? And No, no, no. There were... There were there were certain motels that people stayed at. Certain people stayed at certain places. Uh, some people had homes there. Um, it was very social. It was very small and tight, but it was very social. Everybody gathered at certain two or three. There were two or three restaurants in the Keys uh, that served breakfast. And everybody would be at one of these three restaurants for breakfast sitting around you. See, there was one in Homestead, there was one in Marathon, there was one in uh, Almorada. Uh, and, and depending on where you were fishing, you would eat breakfast with your clients at one of those places. And all the, and there were always a few private guys that were, you know, that were good anglers and, and that were part of, the, part of the circle, the tree. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Um, different time. Yeah. The last thing I really wanted to touch on, uh, Flip, A, how did you get the nickname Flip? Oh, um, I think it was uh, in, the, uh, in the 50s, uh, the last of the 50s, um, I was really, really involved in competitive swimming. And uh, this... Uh, Flip turn had just been developed. I mean, nobody did. Everyone swam into the wall, touched the wall, turned around and pushed off. Nobody did that that flip turn. And my coach uh, was one of the people that developed that turn. Oh wow! And so I I learned that turn very 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 early in competitive swimming. And that's where it came yeah, from. Yeah, that's where it came from. I don't even know your real name. Philip. I'm Philip. Philip. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about was just innovation. And you, you touched on it earlier when you were saying about the outboards now and all these tools, everything outboards run for more than a day and all that stuff. But the skiffs, I've seen old photos of you standing atop of the outboard to pull your boat. And, you know, I've, I've read about how you had to alter these boats that were built for water skiing or all these other things. And I've, always admired, you know, technical polling skiffs. And I know you had a heavy hand in designing a lot of that stuff. So was it just out of necessity that you kind of did a lot of this thing or do you have that design acumen? Um, it was, it was, it was probably some of all of that, but you know, we, we, it, I was not, um, instrumental in the development of the technical polling skiff. I think people like, uh, like Stu and um, Harry Snow Sr., um, Joe Saldino, um, <laughs> Jimmy Albright and people like that were, were, you know, they were fishing in open skiffs long before we came along. But I think, and I say we because 
I have to include the group of my friends that I was growing up with. You know, when we came along and we needed skiffs and we got over the whole air mattress thing, <laughs> uh, we had no money. So we, we had to find hulls somewhere that would do what we needed to be done. And we had to modify them so that we could, so that we could use them in fishing situations. Um, you know, when it started, we used livery skiffs. There used to be all over Miami and the Keys uh, boat liveries where you could go rent a boat. You could rent it with a, mo a motor or without a motor. You could bring your own motor. And they were typically 15-foot open runabouts, they call okay. them. And uh, they were, a lot of times they had a little, uh, like a dashboard and a steering wheel. And, you know, they were, um, but we ripped all that stuff out of the, we would buy these old hulls, rip everything out of them. And we would build fiberglass was just getting started. I mean, everything was wood, and you would fiberglass over it to protect it. Uh, the actual fiberglass hulls were just starting to be made. And they used a different process to make them then than they do now. They were really, really heavy. But they were indestructible compared to wood. So we would look for these distressed fiberglass hulls, and we would somehow get them and rip them apart and turn them into skiffs. And we did that, you know, through those years when we had no money, all through, you know, up to and including the college years. And then after that, we, we started getting more sophisticated and, and uh, building them more in line with what you see in a technical polling skiff these days. Well, that's interesting, and but I think even on your show. So last night I was saying I, I watched a bunch of stuff uh, that you produced over the years, and I watched your very first episode where you were in Costa Rica, and there were these cool underwater shots of the teasers going by, and there was almost like a drone shot. I don't know how you did it if you had another boat with you or something, but I was so impressed. I was like, oh, wow, that's where that came from. <laughs> Well, it, 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 we didn't have the equipment to do the things. I mean, underwater camera housings were made in people's garages. Wow. I mean, that's, and, and it wasn't a little camera this big. It was a big-ass film big camera. Big, giant film camera. Yeah. Heavy. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I, I'll remember, I mean, I remember that for a shot like what you're talking about, teasers going overhead. Imagine what was involved back then to get that shot. We actually would pull the teasers way back. We would open the transom door and push the photographer out, heavily weighted, and he would sink down and try to orient himself by the, by the prop wash from the boat and aim the camera upward and just sit there tread water and try to keep himself aloft while the tees while and until the teasers came overhead um, it was brutal and then we would have to quick turn the boat around go, go back him. and rescue this <laughs> poor 
daredevil of a cameraman. And the, the, the shots that appeared to be drone shots were from a camera boat with a giant high tower. Okay. Tuna tower. And there was somebody in the tuna tower trying to oh, yeah. film something while that the moment of that tuna tower was going like this. It was in, he was in a lot of them. So, I mean, it, it, it was with a big camera. And even when it went to tape, to videotape, the videotape cameras were giant size. Yeah, the batteries uh, and all and that. And batteries. And, but it was to try to film outdoor programming with actual film was a challenge, especially if you went out of the country. Because now you were coming back into the country with exposed film in cans that were sealed with tape. Mm. so that light couldn't get to them. And inevitably, customs in some foreign country wanted to open them, so that it was a constant battle to try to... And so to avoid that, you had to go through... I can't even describe to you the laborious process of dealing with foreign governments in order to avoid their customs opening your exposed film cans. Wow. And this was during the height of drug trafficking in the Caribbean and the, and, the, and the Southern Hemisphere. Man. So uh, it was, and then uh, the film cameras used film magazines that were loaded with unexposed film. And you would leave the dock in the morning with four extra magazines of film. But during the day, you would burn up all that film and they would have to reload those magazines, which involved first taking the exposed film out of the magazine and putting it into a can, rolling it up, putting it back into a can, and sealing the can, all in a light bag, a black cloth bag that had hand holes in it, and everything had to be done inside that bag without light. Wow. By feel. By feel. And then, if, as if that weren't hard enough, you then had to reload the new magazines with film and spool all those, all that film onto the spools in the new magazines and then seal up the magazines so that light couldn't get in them and then take them out of the bag. I think they call it a changing bag. It was, uh, I mean, today I watched somebody send up a drone. Yeah, bing. Yeah. It's like run it from their phone. (laughs) Unbelievable. Yeah, they run it from their iPhone, and the images are fantastic. Yeah. Um, But the the composition part of it, it, like having an eye and and all that. Well, yeah, I can't brag about that myself. Uh, Well, then you had great people because it was was so much fun to watch. Great people, and and they were very patient in, in teaching me so that I could learn the process and develop the eye. And, and um, the, same, the same went for writing the, writing the voiceovers. Uh, I had great people to learn that from. Um, so, again, it was all timing. I mean, all that, it, it'll never happen again. Yeah. It can never happen again. Um, now it's better. I mean, all the equipment is better. The people are stronger, faster, smarter uh, than we were, uh, as it should be. 
Yeah, but the styles are different with so many mediums and social media and all these things. I don't know. A lot of it is great, and there's some people and companies making really, really good stuff, but a lot of it's sort of like infomercials or something. And yeah, it's, it's, that can't be helped. The storytelling that you accomplished was really Again, cool. I go back to timing. When I was doing it, there was very little comp- competition for sponsorship. Today, everybody's got a show. Everybody's yeah. trying to get a Ford. Everybody's trying to get a Tundra. Everybody's trying to get a pen reel. Back when I was doing it, so today, people that are producing outdoor television don't have nearly the creative control that I had when I was doing it mm-hmm. or that we had when we were doing it. Uh, we controlled everything. The sponsors were happy to be there. Yeah. Get the exposure. That's got to be uh, nice. Now, um, let's just say uh, you have a television show now, a fishing show, and your sponsor is uh, uh, Pen Reels. Let's just say Pen Reels. And they insist that you use Pen Reels. They insist that you feature them. They insist that you have so many minutes of time that shows these reels up close and in this angle adding, they control what you do creatively. Not only that, but now you complete that show. It's finished. It's in the can, as they say. And you want to show it next year on another channel or on social media. But now your your real sponsor is Shimano. What are you going to do? That show is lost to you. Yeah. And that show is an asset that you invested money in uh, it's a different world. It is. It's a different world. I mean, I had it pretty easy. Well, and I guess there's good and bad to both, but it was a it was magical stuff you did. And again, I can't thank you enough for, for letting me hang out with you. And I'm excited to write a story about you and get it in the pages of Angler's Journal. And I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to call the guys like Rob Fordyce and all these folks who really love you and uh, get some of their stories about you. And, um, I hope our readers look forward to it. I think it's going to be a really, really great piece. So thank you so much. (laughs) My great pleasure to have you. Oh, this is awesome.